0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. I'm here today with Samuli Shilke to talk about his book, Migrant Dreams, Egyptian Workers in the Gulf States, uh, published by the American University in Cairo Press in 2020. Thank you very much, Samuli, for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Fulia, for inviting me to this conversation today. Thanks.
1: It's my pleasure. At the New Books Network, we'd like to first start with learning about our guest's background. So could you tell us about your background in anthropology and how you came to be interested in this topic?
2: Well, uh, basically, I was um, young and unemployed in Finland, where I came from. Um, And uh, I left Finland for Germany to study abroad. And I ended up studying Arabic because I had been in Egypt and Tunisia as a tourist. Uh, A mixture of quite typical tourist fascination and a desire to understand uh, what I had experienced on my trips made me want to learn languages. And uh, over years, I became more and more interested in Egypt. I went to improve my Arabic in Egypt. And I think Egypt made me an anthropologist in the sense that I was a student of Arabic and Islamic studies. But I left it after my graduation and uh, went to do my PhD in the Netherlands in Amsterdam, where I was retrained as an anthropologist because... Probably because I found Egypt such an interesting and inspiring place and met so many people who had something interesting to say that I felt that this was worth learning and studying more than the textual world that Arabic and Islamic studies had taught me. And uh, very luckily for me, I turned out to be a career and uh, I found work in academia, which is not an obvious thing. And in my postdoc research, I was back in Egypt, and I was studying various kinds of hope. Originally, it was mainly about religious hope, but religious hope is mixed with all kinds of other moral hopes and material hopes in a good life, marriage, housing, uh, and migration was a major issue. People were just talking about it. It was not something that I actually wanted to research about, and I was not part at all of the circles of people who were doing what is considered migration research, which often has a focus on people who arrive in Europe or North America as migrants or refugees. I found myself among mostly young men who were having this sense that where they are, there is not enough. There is There are no chances that the chances are elsewhere. And this was a situation where my wife, Daniela Swarovski, um, came on a visit to um, Egypt, where I was there on fieldwork, and she saw, uh, she met these same people, some of them, and she herself as an artist was engaged with many Moroccan migrants living in the Netherlands who were quite skeptical about their choices. On her way to the airport, she took a taxi, and the taxi driver was Egyptian and said, oh, you're going to Egypt. I come from there. It was the worst decision in my life to come to Europe. And she, got, she was wondering what is going on when some people have this urgent dream of leaving their homelands for somewhere else and some other people are very skeptical about the fact that they did succeed in taking this trip. And she started making a, a movie project, a project of documentary films of it. Uh, she made two of them. Uh, unfortunately, she died two years ago. I couldn't do the third one, but she made two films called Messages from Paradise. And the first one was made partly with the same people I did field work with in Egypt. And that basically made me, working with her together on that film, made me think more and more about migration as a, as a desire that structures the experience and the life in a society. In a society where people who grow up there have the sense that they are in a position of being in a provincial location. And the world and the chances that the world provides are at the same time imaginable seemingly at hand's reach, but one is not yet there. So this creates an enormous pressure, and this is what I wanted to follow. And then uh, one of the people I knew got a contract in Qatar, and I decided to join him there, and I traveled to Qatar and met him there, and that's where the book begins.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing uh, journey, very unexpected too. And you mentioned in your book that to be able to write on Egypt, you had to write on migration. So can you tell us a bit about this spatial, this geographical aspect of um, being a migrant man in the Gulf um, and moving away from the home in Egypt? (laughs)
2: Yes. Um, I mean, there is a, there, uh, I found that there is a kind of peculiar methodological nationalism was there in much of research, because at that time, this was still before the revolution, there was a huge amount of foreign researchers doing research in Egypt. But there was not much, uh, there were a couple of people who are cited in the book, uh, but not much actually looking at how Egypt, like most countries in the world, expands beyond its border through people. Uh, so people would have Families in the U.S., in Europe, but most importantly in the Gulf, which is, in terms of numbers, the vastly most important uh, site of, for Egyptian migrations. Um, but the Gulf is special because it enforces a circular pattern. It enforces return. Um, in other sites of migration, people have the choice. They ask themselves, am I going to stay here or not? In, in the Gulf, this question is much more difficult to have, although some people ask it anyway. But the expectation is return. So, people in the 80s, the first 70s and 80s, in the village where I did field work, people first went to Iraq, then to Saudi Arabia, uh, more recently to Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and wherever opportunities arise, wherever somebody else already has been, people follow up. Um, I'm not sure if this was the question.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, the the question was about um, the spatiality. So, what makes one to leave um, to leave Egypt and move to the Gulf?
2: Yes, and on the spatiality, I think it's important to remember that migration is not just across borders. Egypt is uh, Egypt is a very large country of, meanwhile, over one hundred million inhabitants who are also on the move inside their country. People move from the rural areas to the city, uh, to the big cities, especially to Cairo. Uh, Many people work as contract workers in industrial sites, in agricultural sites, in tourism, inside the country. There's a long history of especially men, not only men, but especially men moving after work. And some people go to the Gulf in the same spirit. It's uh, not so different from them from going to uh, the Red Sea region to work in a tourist uh, resort to go to instead uh, to a Gulf state to work there in a service work or in a construction work. So in a way it's it's an expanse, you can think of it as an expanse of people on the move and some moves are cheaper and easier and shorter and some moves are more dramatic, more radical, more dangerous, more expensive. And I think there is also that kind of tragic aspect that the more dangerous and expensive the move is, the greater dream-like character it gains, the more attractive it becomes.
1: Yeah. And um, um, can you tell us a bit about the sponsor system of Kefala uh, in in, in Doha, in Qatar, that um, makes this contract uh, work and makes this like repetitive migration kind of for these uh, migrant men?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that one of the things that I constantly try to do in the book is to think about political economy, the kind of laws, inequalities, and power relations that structure people's experience, which are both state laws and economic structures, but also family structures, moral structures of households, and the ideas that people pursue, the motivations and dreams and senses of possibility that people have. So think, of, think these two sides in the same picture. This is what I try to do in the book. So, the gulf is often seen as a site of opportunity for money. It's considered to be less a place to settle permanently, although some people do, more or less, and more a place to realize a concrete aim. I need so and so much money to get married. I need so and so much money to build a house. I need so and so much money to educate my children. And there is this sense, especially among those who have never migrated, there is this sense of amazing opportunity that is often talked about in terms of a fortune, which is typically not quantified. It's just this huge amount of money that enables you to do what you want. But when one actually goes to work in the Gulf, one, first of all, inc- encounters a highly restrictive labor regime that's been, I think, if I'm r- not wrong, it was developed in Kuwait in the 1950s first and then taken over by every other, all other Gulf countries which means that foreign workers have to have a sponsor. And foreign investors have to have something similar. They have to have a partner. And which means that a foreign worker is not a full legal person. And a foreign worker needs to have a sponsor. And the sponsor gives his, usually it's a he, uh, could be, could be of his, he as well. The sponsor gives has to give their agreement on every major legal transaction that a worker does, from uh, s- starting a job, for quitting a job, to all kinds of uh, other things. And this means that it's very easy to wield control over the labor force. And the sp- sponsor is, it makes it, for example, very difficult for workers to t- change jobs. Uh, it makes it difficult for them to quit jobs they don't like. Um, It's a bit heavy. It's a bit heavy-handed system, so it's not very neoliberal. That's why some Gulf economy, especially Dubai, that is going much more neoliberal, has meanwhile been reforming the kafala system and been making it a little more relaxed and a little less heavy and uh, strong, uh, partly because it's in their interest to have a flexible, precarious labor force. Because what the kafala creates is not precarity. It creates very heavy dependence on the goodwill of your employers. And this is something that people have heard about it, but most people ha- don't realize what it means to be subject to a kafil, to a sponsor, to means to not have actually your decisions in your own hands. And this has been a major discussion of, uh, of international rights discourses uh, because it very clearly is done to disenfranchise and to uh, what's the opposite of emancipation, to, uh, to take away from people a certain kind of agency, and uh, people ha- it internationally it's been compared to modern-day slavery, uh, which I think is more as a way of moral judgment to say that it's bad for workers, which it is, but I think if we actually analyze it as a political economy, it's very different from slavery because it's about having people who are obedient but disposable. And this is uh, how the entire regime works, and to be part of this regime, it's something that people are often shocked at first because they, it's difficult to anticipate what it means in concrete terms.
1: And you also mentioned, in terms of the geography again, so you also mentioned that the hypermodernity, the hyper-reality in, uh, in Doha, Qatar uh, particularly, is also built by the cheap migrant labor force behind. So can you take us through this um, locality to kind of explain us how the how the scene was looking like
2: yeah so the book basically takes place in two places in a village in Egypt and in a neighboring village where i sit with people i know in the outside the, the village, in a cafe on the side of, a, of an irrigation canal and somebody's home, and then in workers' lodgings and workplaces in Doha and Qatar, where some people I knew went on a contract job as security workers. They were guarding a bank, they were guarding public parks. Half, whenever they had any t- free time, they were sitting in the accommodation to save money because they wouldn't spend any money. And then there was this other world, which. Uh, which Qatar was busy building right at that moment in the 2000s, uh, hurrying to catch up with, uh, with uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. It's fancy shopping malls, uh, skyscrapers, a very impressive display of urban hyper-modernity, which most people were quite impressed about. But um, when we see it, it's, of course, also a performance of hyper-modernity that consciously hides uh, it's dark side, which is the lives of people who get paid quite low salaries, are accommodated in very simple and often very not very comfortable accommodations, uh, who have very wanting labor rights, and uh, Qatar is in fact lagging behind on these issues. Um, and at the same time, actually the Gulf states don't hide these things. Very well. Uh, Basically, uh, the dark side of the flashy, luxury, modernist accomplishment of the Gulf states is simply hidden by human laziness to look at the other side. You can go there and say, wow, how beautiful this is, and you don't want to see anything else. European countries, for example, do much bigger effort to hide their dark side by extraterritorializing it outside the Schengen borders. So that actually in Germany you would have to look around and search for it and you still wouldn't see our dark side because our dark side is in the Sahara and in Bangladesh and in China. So so this is also something that must be mentioned, that uh, there is... a. The, the labor regime of the Gulf state has a brutality that comes also with a degree of honesty um, about its functioning, uh, which I think also makes the Gulf a good place to understand how the world works, because I think it doesn't work. You know, there are certain special features like the kafala system, which is unique. But other than that, I think the migrant experience in the Gulf is not radically different from elsewhere in the world. But it does highlight more the expectation of return. Something that so many migrants in worldwide have, either because they feel homesick or also because it's a societal expectation, a societal ideal that a good migration is one that leads one back home. And this is something that I've exp- encountered in Egypt as a really major societal driving force, the idea that migration should leave one back home. It has started to change recently a little bit, but in the time of my fieldwork, it was very tangible, and the Gulf enforces this aspect and it, so therefore also for me was a good place to understand what it feels like. Because what was interesting: how 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 does power power relations link with what it feels like to be subject to these powers? What does it feel like to be part of this kind of project of return? And then. The return often needs to be deferred and deferred because you need a little bit more money and the salary wasn't quite good as you wanted and the cost of living is higher than you thought and there are new expenses. And so you say, I'm going to go back next year and next year you say, I'm going to go back next year and next year, I'm going to go back next year. And two guys said, and they were also going to go back next year and they said, look, uh, let's be honest, we're going to stay here as long as there is money to be earned. We're going to be here until the end of oil.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was a very interesting remark that I it was really striking to to be reading that too. Um and let's talk a bit about your participants then. So, um, can you give us some information on your participants and some of them are quite exceptional uh people like uh your like the Taufik, the key friends that you had in your field. So can you tell us a bit about uh, the backgrounds of your participants and what kinds of personalities did they have?
2: Um, So basically this research began and has continued because of the personal engagement and conviction of Taufi that my research is interesting, that it's worth doing and that it might in however minute fashion, actually do something good for the conditions of people who work as migrant workers. So um, to a major degree, it is really thanks to him. And uh, because he has the same kind of social scientific mindset and he thinks differently than many other people about a few issues, has a poetic mind, has has an analytic mind. But it also means that He is, in many other ways, an ordinary worker like millions others. And uh, as his guest, I would meet other workers who had similar experiences, although they might have different values, different uh, expectations, different desires. So basically, I entered um, a group of people as a guest. And because I entered a group of people who actually really wanted to talk about their experience, who had um, a desire to discuss and reflect about it, they welcomed me to be part of that reflection. And then uh, the interesting thing about being in a situation where people come together as workers is that uh, you actually meet people who might share a vaguely similar class position, but other than that, in terms of religious ideas, values, life experiences, rural, urban locations, they are often very, very different. So I encountered with people with different ideas, attitudes, but similar structural position. And I think that uh, that was crucial because it was a position where people experienced strong hardship, um, which was largely hardship through monotony, through very long working hours and no breaks and the pressure of having to accumulate because you are not there as a worker to live there. Uh, you are there as a worker to accumulate, to have something to sp- send home. This is, this is a constant pressure. Sense of deprivation and hardship came also from the pressure of having to accumulate. People were not living in Doha, Qatar, because they particularly wanted to live there. They were living there to realize something back at home, which for most people I met was in Egypt. Some people I met for them, home was in Nepal. For all of them, the horizon was to realize something in the future, and they were they were depriving themselves of time, fun, spending at that moment in order to have something else which creates pressure because then you actually have to be able to do that and if you don't then the situation is very difficult at the same time there was some strong optimism because this future orientation of course is an optimistic attitude migration is an optimistic step much much of the time and uh, so people also talked a lot about dreams. And even when they, whenever they spoke about hardship, they also said, but there is a dream. We have to have a dream. We have a dream. And that is when I started to look at dreams in a different sense than I did when I first encountered them. the theme of the dream of migration among people who hadn't migrated yet. For those who hadn't migrated yet, the dream was often vague and fuzzy and fantastic. And as I said, it was the idea of a fortune, but the fortune didn't come with numbers. For those who were working, they started to dream in numbers. Uh, they started counting actual savings. How much money could I spend, uh, save send home this year, this month, this year, during my entire contract? What does it build for me? What can I build for it? And this is when I started to think about dreams as something that was, are actually part and parcel of the reproduction of society because these dreams are usually quite conventional ones, marriage, house, and a degree of material comfort and respectability that is the same or better than the one in which one grew up. So social mobility starting from the spot where one started in. And there I increasingly started thinking about imagination, and dreams and migration also are something that actually reproduces because there is this um, tendency at least in the academic research I'm aware of and on the, the circles I moved in to think about the fantasy as a site of freedom, as a site of resistance, as a site of alternatives which it also is but I think that the fantasy is equally also a site of reproduction of the same, of reproduction of the cons- conservative society, of an enormous labor of love that goes into recreating the same structures. And, um, and that uh, became then the kind of, uh, let's say, that the main theoretical theme. And I think that Im- I can almost remember that this theme became something I was aware of one evening when we were visiting another accommodation. And it's actually mentioned there in the book where one guy says, are we alive? Uh, we are alive, but this is not a proper life, but you have to have a dream. And this, this conversation started to, was the starting point for me to go to a different direction. And then I started to talk about what I call inevitable dreams, which is not inevitable in the sense that it's inevitably will be realized, but uh, that you will have to, maybe you, you in a sense you know, one who, one who is in that structural position, uh, inevitably will have to think about this dream. Even in the unlikely case that one refuses to follow it, it is something that one cannot ignore. And the vast majority of people will struggle hard to realize such issues as a marriage accepted by the family and social milieu, as comfortable housing that is same or better than what they grew up in. These kind of dreams become powerful because everybody encourages them and because quite a lot of people realize them. Not everybody uh, People fail, Uh, it's an exploitative system, the price is high and the most paradoxical price is that often people realize it much later than they hope to. One of the strange paradoxical prices of of men's migration abroad to realize the means of manhood is that they get at the age of 40 something that they really needed when they were 20.
1: Let's let's talk about the spaces these young migrant men lived, like in terms of the accommodation and also the jobs that they had. Yeah.
2: Yes. So um, this uh, in so basically the lives of uh, people I work with were divided between where they came from which is f- always was for them their home which uh, was uh, mostly villages in the Nile delta or cities in the Nile delta which is where they were in constant communication as much as they could that was not so easy as today because back then there were no smartphones yet and internet was more expensive but it was a major activity and accommodations in which they lived and these accommodations are intentionally unhomelike um they, The accommodation where I stayed was a company-provided accommodation where there were different nationalities. Nation, the rooms were divided by nationalities. Egyptians in one room, people from Thailand in one room, people from Philippines in one room, people from the Sudan in one room, and so on. And uh, each room had between six and ten inhabitants, which was not very good, but also not very bad and uh, this was the major site of socialization it's a place where solidarity is possible it's also a place where conflicts happen it's also a place that is ethnically very divided and there is strong ethnic tensions and the solidarities are often mainly ethnic which makes which is policy by the way and then there was the workplace and the workplaces, in this case, were low sec- low security locations, uh, receptions of banks, public parks, public buildings. Uh, some people were working in high security locations, but I could not access them for obvious reasons. Uh, there was not actually much security to work about because these g- Gulf states all have very low crime rates. Uh, the most important job of security is actually closer to customer service to tell people which way to go which door to open uh, where to move and i think the perhaps most important form of enforcement that happens is to keep so-called bachelors apart from so-called families but the people i was with worked not in a company that was doing that so there is a very peculiar form of a uh, class division that is at the same time racialized and gendered, which is uh, that the difference between families and bachelors. Bachelors in the Gulf countries does not mean person who is not married, but a person who is a foreign worker and does not have his family with him. It's male gender, male gendered. women are not bachelors because women are not considered to be dangerous the same way men are. So it is single men who are considered to be a danger to families and therefore must be kept away from family areas. And who are families uh, are citizens, obviously, and being a citizen is in itself a privilege, are middle class and high income migrants who by their visa status and income are allowed to have their family with them. So the bachelors and families is a complex gendered racialized class division, and the people I knew were all bachelors, which meant that that their movement in the the city was much more police, the movement was much more curtailed. Taufi uh, took great pleasure uh, in going out in the city, in my company, because I had white privilege, and with white privilege I could get exemptions to some of these bachelor rules, although not all of them. And so this also meant that sites of socialization were quite limited, and uh, Therefore life tended to be located between work and accommodation and people rarely ventured in the city rarely went to discover the city the city did not really disco- the city did not really welcome that kind of discovery by people branded as bachelors.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, and these narrow circles we see in some of your chapters, as you mentioned that there are a lot of conflicts about, like, uh, you mentioned subaltern racism and you also mentioned um, little, like, tactics about manipulating the system to gain the upper hand in some ways. Um, So, Uh, this is a little bit different than the approaches of many scholars who wrote on the tactics of the week. Um, You argue that these tactics, these like subaltern racisms, manipulating the system and things like these might not necessarily challenge the systems of oppression, but maybe constitutive parts of the oppressive systems as um, you so beautifully show in your book. Can you tell us a bit about these tactics and how these are reproducing the same oppressive systems in some ways.
2: Yes, um, I call them tactics um, inspired by Michel de Certeau, who I think is the one who popularized the idea of the tactics of the weak. De Certeau uses, interestingly, for being a man of peace, he uses military language. A tactic is a way of acting in a battle where you don't have the power to determine the layout of the battle. The layout of the battle, the positions are determined by a more powerful enemy and you have to make use of what you have and make your take best advantage of that. So therefore the Sato translates a military concept into a progressive use as a way of seeing how people in a weaker position can actually use structures, for example, of the state, of capitalism, of uh, institutional religion to their ends. And I think that works very well, but I think the problem is that often progressive scholars have projected a hope of a certain kind of tactic, which is that of a radical tactic. A radical tactic that uses the existing structures in order to overcome them. But a radical position is actually a difficult position. It actually requires already a certain degree of empowerment to have a radical position. That's one of the things I learned living with workers in the Gulf, is that it actually takes quite a, quite some degree of privilege and empowerment to question the system in a way that could be consistent in any way and it is actually much more attractive and for many people also morally more acceptable to make oneself comfortable in it and to make oneself comfortable in it might undermine it when people uh, don't pay their phone bills the phone company loses money but when people do certain other things to soften their condition, it also means that actually these different moves of softening the condition become the condition. Um, a good example that's been uh, studied by Filippo and Caroline, Caroline Osella is how relationships and informal solutions work, uh, which are often uh, then kind of exoticized as something that would be oriental and unmodern, which I agree with them is not it's pretty common way of running things everywhere in the world but the difference is that when the powerful people powerful people do that this they can actually move things powerful people can make informal little deals that actually move things and change the world because they are actually in commands of institutions and resources to do that while people in weaker positions don't by definition have the same power. Uh, to be weak is to be forced to use tactics that are not as effective and uh, that's why I have a more skeptical vision because I think um, it's important to also understand why these kind of systems of hierarchical exploitations are so effective. Um, they work really well and this is something that we have to acknowledge.
1: Yeah, and you show this uh, very, very nicely in the book. Um, you you talk about all the complexity that you see here, and you're not basically just saying that um, these are reproducing the same systems, but these are just much more complex than just challenging the systems, right?
2: Plus, of course, we have to remember that many workers themselves think that certain hierarchies are good and need to be reproduced. Uh, the m- migration of men... Um, is, more often than not, an attempt to reproduce patriarchal society where there is a male breadwinner role, where there is the idea of a dominant masculinity, of uh, domestic uh, domesticity of women. And this is done because people think that it's a good way to live uh, and that other ways to live are problematic, to say the least, and undesirable. So there is actually also genuine moral concern that goes into maintaining many hierarchies. Uh, Although I think that many of the hierarchies that then actual labor relations involve are less anybody's moral concern and more simply about the possibility to make money. And the easiest spot to save is at the lowest employees, because again, being a weak party means that you have less power to move things, which means it's easy to sa- easier to save at your expense.
1: And they were also questioning your um, research there and also like why why aren't you living here instead of in Europe, right? Uh, you, could, you could earn so much money here. So they were also like challenging your own choices too depending on their own um, kind of... Um, beliefs uh, about the ideal way of living.
2: Yes, or they were expressing an implicit idea of what is an ideal way of living, which is the understanding that you have to sacrifice for money. Um, I have a job that is so privileged that I don't have to sacrifice for money. I can actually sacrifice money in the sense that I have a job that is not as highly paid as some other people who have the same level of education as I do. do. But in exchange for that, I still have a very, very nice pay, uh, much more than my neighbors, and I can do what I want, and I can live at home. Back then, I wasn't able to put this into words, and my roommate remained unconvinced, why wouldn't this guy want to live here? Simply because the idea of sacrificing for money is so intuitive that you have to come up with really good explanation why you would not sacrifice life for money. Uh, later, when I was this year in Dubai, I realized what the answer is, that actually I have a job where I can live at home. I don't have to live in the Hurba, I will not have to live in estrangement. And that's why I wouldn't want to come to the Gulf. And that is actually a convincing argument because this, for all those migrants who go abroad not in order to make a new home but to build a home somewhere else, this is something that is actually a major sacrifice for them that hurts. And the idea that you could have a have a good job and live at home, even if it's a bit less money, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and let's talk about. You mentioned ghurba just a minute ago. So let's talk about some of these terms that you um, explain in chapter two. So uh, basically, you write on how, when you say migrants in your book, you speak about with meaning that um, being away from home uh, rather temporarily. And Ghurba, for example, is a sense of being abroad in a strange place among strangers separated from the familial connections and safety of home. So can you tell us a bit about this variety of different terms used in Arabic for migration, as opposed to in English, we only have like migrant refugee. But here you show us a connection with the home as well, not just with the place that that has arrived. So um, can you tell us a bit about this variety and how your research collaborators would define themselves and their senses associated with the specific form of migration that they went through?
2: Yes, this is something that I actually didn't realize when I was writing the first draft of the book. So paradoxically, the Arabic version of the book that came out first uses consistently the word, word hijrah which is usually used to translate migration in legal and academic texts. But in Arabic, hijra means a migration that is with the aim of resettlement somewhere else. You abandon a place and you go to live in another one. And this is not not the word that the people I was with would have used of themselves. They used the word Ghurba, which means being away from home, or they used the word Safar, which means travel. And Safar travel can be anything between a week or a lifetime. And this, and I, and actually, when I was just presenting the Arabic version in Alexandria, one of the readers said, Hey, you're using, you're using the wrong word. What these people are doing is not hijra." And I said, Yeah, oops, you're right. <laughs> and then when I revised the book for English publication, I went through every instance where the word migrant or migration was used, and I thought, which one is it? Is it Hidra, abandoning a place to live in another one? Is it Gurba being away from home, or is it Safar, is it the travel? And I found this much more useful language than the ones I know in English, because the ones in English are either legal, which is that between a migrant and a refugee, which which assumes that there is a clear-cut distinction between voluntary and forced travel, or it's classed. is that between migrant and expat, which is basically uh, a racialized or class distinction of rich or poor migrants. And none of that kind of, for me, actually is useful to describe what migrants in the Gulf understand about their own migration. So I in the English version, I went through it and uh, tried to make it as close to the Arabic terminology as possible because it works better.
1: Yeah, and what is the relationship between um, these forms of migration in the book uh, that you show through your research collaborators and um, the dreaming? So what is, how, how does this form of migration affect the migrant dreaming?
2: Uh, You mean the experience of hurba, of living away from home temporarily?
1: Uh, Yeah, the experience of the temporary um, form of migration, like the hurba, the muteribin is the word, right? Mm.
2: Yes. So that kind of migration that is characterized by what people call hurba, being away from home, it creates these long-term deferred lives of delayed circularity where uh, emotional intensity and investment are located where people come from and moral value is located where people come from. So there is this intense valuation of home, domesticity, family, marriage, a heteronormative, pious national ideal. While at the same time uh, the men who are working abroad live extended lives that are have a degree of alienation, have forms of sociality that are very different and often have some degree of moral exceptionality against the home. So it creates these long-term experiences of uh, what could be called a kind of divide between the home and the accommodation, where people live in accommodations to build homes in which they might live again. And it also creates communities which extend around the planet. So, I call the villages uh, suburbs of the Gulf in the sense that they are the homes for people who work in metropolitan centers on the Arabian Gulf. And just like that, you have suburbs of the United States all across the American continent and suburbs of uh, European cities in Africa and Eastern Europe and uh, so on.
1: Yeah. Um, And I want to ask about the gender and sexuality aspects in the book, because the book is mainly about the lives, conditions, aspirations of young migrant men. And you share very interesting experiences about gender relations and how sexuality is kind of imagined. Um, So can you tell us a bit about the roles gender and sexuality play in the lives and the self-makings of your research collaborators?
2: Well, I'm, I mean, to start with, this kind of migration is driven by gender and sexuality. It's about becoming a man in a social sense. It's also about becoming a man in a sexual sense uh, in legitimate bounds of a marriage. So it drives the whole project. At the same time, it creates this moral exception where lots of men are living together in a strictly homosocial environment. This was especially so in Doha and Qatar. Uh, I think it's similar in uh, Saudi Arabia. Some other Gulf locations like Dubai are quite different and uh, provide a much less segregated experience. Uh, And in this segregated experience, it means that there is... It also means that there is intense anxiety, also intense amount of sexual fantasies, intense amount of talk about women and sex. And uh, some of these fantasies are then uh, located in uh, imagined uh, imagined desires of Gulf women, which are strictly imagined because I don't think that any of these people actually would have had the possibility of t- such contacts, at least not in uh, Qatar. And it re- created also sometimes uh, sort of absurd situations um, where it became a kind of display, competitive display of masculinity, for example, once between boss and workers, where the boss mayor more or less scolded the workers for not harassing a woman who worked past them. The reason they didn't was that in the Gulf state, public harassment is very strictly policed again against which uh, women migrants find great because it actually creates a very comfortable experience of moving in public spaces where women living in the Gulf state can be quite certain that people are not going to shout after them or or touch them. While for men, it created this kind of very absurd situation where then there was this group of men having a discussion about why where why didn't you say anything? so this is very much sort of the opposite of what one would expect from a from a moral critique of harassment in this case, it went the other way around and and it creates all kinds of weird tensions, but it also then creates very peculiar self perceptions where um, then men I met kind of had this idea of themselves being the real cultivated romantic men, uh, as opposed to Gulf men whom they imagined to be uncultivated, and as opposed to uh, Western men whom they imagined to be uncivilized. So um, so this is, it becomes, a, a and I think... Um, I think actually there is much more to be said about that because uh, this was with young unmarried peop- unmarried men in a very segregated context. And more recently, I've been working in Dubai with uh, with people who are ten twenty years older and much more mixed society. Uh, actually, much more space for relationships, and uh, there is a but the migratory situation becomes. A site in which people, which men put huge effort into a certain kind of ideal masculinity and performing it in both economical ways, but also in physical ways, in certain forms of workout, in forms of language. But at the same time, in a situation where the labor regime makes certain aspects of that idealized, often somewhat macho masculinity, actually unattainable, the key one of them is actually the role of being a family household head because one is away from one's family or one is away from uh, from the family one might build. So it is a very paradoxical reproduction of uh, heteronormative masculinity that creates something weirdly different from what it aims to create.
1: Yeah, it, is, it is very interesting to read about all those. And um, so I'll ask my final question about the book and then we will continue with your um, next project. Um, So the book is so beautifully written, is so interesting to read. Um, I literally could not stop reading it even for one second after taking it into my hands. And there are some reasons behind, not only about the content of the book, but also the format that you chose. So um, I like to talk about some of these unorthodox choices that you made in this book. Like you published the Arabic translation of the book in 2017, so before the English version. And you have 15 chapters and a final chapter in the book, um, which is quite uh, unorthodox when we think about these forms of books. And you also wrote the literature review parts, like sort of how you explain your theory and uh, all the literature parts in the final chapter instead of the first couple of chapters. So I would like to ask about these choices. Why did you make these choices? How were the processes of making these choices?
2: Yes, I don't think I made any of these choices beforehand. Uh, There was not a master plan for this book. Um, I actually didn't intend to write a book. It was supposed to be an article. And my wife, Daniela, told me, had seen some of my um, field notes. And she said, your field notes are so much better than your boring articles. Why don't you write like that? And um, first I had to get over the ego- egoistic injury about my articles being boring. And then I said, thought, maybe I should try that. So I started writing from field notes. I collected field notes from the short visit in, uh, in, in Doha, as well as from 10 years of time in Egypt uh, before and after that trip with the people I met in Doha. And I collected them in a pile this thick, and I started going through it and sorting it out and thinking how what kind of themes emerge. And as these themes emerge, I started grouping them. And I think at least one third of the book is actually edited field notes. I have not marked them. I have just turned them into text. That made for a very narrative text, and when you are narrative, when you tell stories, uh, you need space. So very soon I realized that there was no way this could be an article. It grew over 10,000 pages, then it grew over uh, 20,000 pages, uh, words, over 20,000. Finally, the Arabic version was 28,000. The English is, I think, 35,000 words. So it grew into a book, and it grew naturally into a book because I wanted to write narratively from the fieldwork. And running to write narratively from the fieldwork also created the short chapters, because uh, big chapters are typically something that are the result of a top-down attempt to systematize an argument. So this is the part of my book, which tells about this issue and so on. Uh, when you move into a narrative logic, chapters become shorter, just uh, not naturally, but they kind of... there It becomes... Um, you know, it becomes easier and attractive to write short chapters when the logic is narrative. Because you say, okay. there is this thing, and then this thing leads to this thing, and then this thing leads to this thing, and each one is a chapter. I had uh, some uh, research funds for translation. I had agreed with Amr Khairi, who had translated previous work by me to uh, uh, translate this article. So we had already a translation agreement before I started writing. And then it turned into a book. I applied for my funds. I got for more funds. Finally, we had uh, all the funds together. Eventually, there was the book. And by the time I had my book manuscript, I had a very unusual situation that there was already a translator waiting eagerly for my manuscript. And he had a a publisher that he had already been in contact with. So from the moment of the first manuscript... He immediately started translating. The moment the translation was ready, we started revising the translation because actually the translation was revised heavily after he did it because I restructured the book after reading the translation. And it went to the publisher and the publisher published it and out it was. And then it took me years to find an English publisher and to find uh, find a time to revise it because English academic publishing is slower but also because I realized that the Arabic readers were the best possible peer review I could ever do, get, and there was absolutely no point of letting that go to waste and not have that worked into the book. So I added two and a half chapters that had, weren't in the Arabic origin, and my Arabic readers are, I think, uh, still a little unhappy that they haven't gotten to read that part. There was a part I forgot to say, yes, the so mm-hmm. the final chapter. The final chapter actually was quite an ordinary first chapter that I wrote in the beginning, as we academics always do, to prove that we're qualified to write about this topic. Yes, I know who else has written about the Gulf. Yes, I know who else has written about the imagination. Yes, this is what I did with what I read from them. It was right in the beginning of the book. Uh, Amru sent me the uh, translation, and what happens in translation is that when something is badly written in original, you can't make it good in translation. So it stood out as a very heavy beginning. And I sent it to Taufi who is an avid reader and I asked him what do you think about it? And I said it's good but it, the beginning is quite heavy. And uh, so I said well you know what would happen if we just put it at the end? And so and put it at the end and it sits fine there at the end and the book begins directly with the topic. Uh, so this was all of this was quite pragmatic choices, and I think all of these were pragmatic choices that were possible because it's my third book. I don't need it uh, I didn't need it for any qualification. I didn't need need it to have it passed to any kind of formal exam. and therefore a lot of academic formal criteria fell out. I could write a book that I think was fun to write. That people would read, and that would at the same time, I would say, this is a book of, this is a piece of scientific research. There is an argument, and you can, and here is the evidence, and you can be convinced or unconvinced about it. But I don't think it would be would have been ever been possible to write for me as, as a yeah, first book.
1: Um, yeah, that is that is for sure. But it was certainly a joy. Uh, to read the book and I, I, really, I really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you for taking us through your book and your thinking. We have taken up a lot of your time so I will now move into my last question. So what are you working on now or what would be your next project?
2: Well, I have two. One is done because uh, Migrant Dreams was originally the second half of a big project on imagination where the other part was about literature. I mentioned you noticed that Taufi also is into literature, so I was originally thinking of doing a work about migration and literature. It became two, so there is another book coming about writers in Alexandria this summer, but that's already done. It was actually two parallel projects. And now I'm back back for field work and I was just recently in Dubai trying to understand how uh, men closer to my age now are struggling to build what they call stability and uh, the sense of uh, reliable conditions of living back at home uh, through series, through series of migratory trips, contracts abroad. And it's also interesting to be now in a spot that is uh, much more open as a city, much more explicitly welcoming uh, for people to stay longer and to build their lives. The Dubai's business model basically is based on people moving there earning and spending their money there, and so that is uh, something I want to follow up with. So my project, I would say, is a sequel to Migrant Dreams that is about uh, the idea of stability and how the experience of successfully finding one's place abroad complicates that because some people, even in the Gulf where one is not supposed to stay, end up wanting to stay. And some people come back, they come back very different from how they left. So that's going to be the next.
1: That sounds very, very exciting. Well, we'll certainly be looking forward to reading about your next projects as well. Thank you very much, Dr. Samuli Shilke, for your time, for joining us, for sharing your insights.
2: Thank you, Fulia. It was a pleasure.
1: I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. This discussion of Migrant Dreams, Egyptian Workers and the Gulf States, published by the American University in Cairo Press, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. With the Lucky Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.